The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 30, a psalm, a song at the dedication of the house of the Lord. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have lifted me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried out to you and you healed me. O Lord, you brought my soul up from the grave. You have kept me alive that I should not go down to the pit. Sing praise to the Lord, you saints of his, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, his favor is for life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Now in my prosperity, I said, I shall never be moved. Lord, by your favor, you have made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face and I was troubled. I cried out to you, O Lord, and to the Lord I made supplication. What profit is there in my blood when I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it declare your truth? Hear, O Lord, and have mercy on me. Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have put off my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness to the end that my glory may sing praise to you and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Okay, we are in Deuteronomy 16. This is verses 13 through 22. Once again, it's a Chag or a Feast of the Lord. It's a review of what we've seen quite a few times. So uh, the sermon will be a little shorter than normal, but uh, I hope it will bless you. There's a couple verses at the end that have nothing to do with it as well as we close out the chapter. So um, Deuteronomy 16, 13 through 22. You shall observe the Feast of Tabernacles seven days and you have, when you have gathered your threshing floor and from your wine press. And you shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, and the Levite, the stranger and the fatherless and the widow who are within your gates. Seven days you shall keep a sacred feast to the Lord your God in the place which the Lord chooses, because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hands, so that you surely rejoice. Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Tabernacles, and they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God, which he has given you. You shall appoint judges and officers in all your gates, which the Lord your God gives you. According to your tribes, they shall judge the people with just judgment, You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality nor take a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. You shall follow what is altogether just that you may live and inherit the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not plant for yourself any tree as a wooden image near the altar which you build for yourself to the Lord your God. You shall not set up a sacred pillar which the Lord your God hates. The Passover. And the first two Chag, or pilgrim feasts, have been detailed. In our passage today, Moses turns to the third of these pilgrim feasts, tabernacles. 
of this feast, Charles Ellicott states, the Passover is his sacrifice and death. We keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread by serving him in sincerity and truth. The Feast of Tabernacles has not yet been fulfilled by our Lord like the two other great feasts of the Jewish calendar. Unfulfilled prophecies regarding it may be pointed out as in Zechariah chapter 14. Ellicott is correct concerning the Passover. It anticipates Christ's sacrifice and death. He is correct concerning the Feast of Unleavened Bread as well, citing Paul as a demonstration of it being worked out in our lives. But is it correct that the Feast of Tabernacles has not yet been fulfilled by our Lord? Anyone? For those of you who said no, whether you said it to yourself or not, that's a bunch of malarkey. You can give yourself a pat on the back. For those of you who went on to say that is actually heresy, you get bonus points and accolades. Is there anything else wrong with what he said? Well, yes. Yes, there is. He said, like the two other great feasts of the Jewish calendar. In stating it this way, he is implying that these are Jewish feasts. That is incorrect. They are feasts observed by the Jews, but they are feasts of the Lord in his redemptive calendar. In matters such as this, it is important to be precise. As far as Zechariah 14, what is he referring to there? It forms our text verse. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which come against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And it shall be that whichever of the families of the earth do not come up to worship Jerusalem, to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. If the family of Egypt will not come up and enter in, they shall have no rain. They shall receive the plague with which the Lord strikes the nations who do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Has the prophecy of Zechariah 14 been fulfilled? Well, no, it never has. As this is the case, then how can Charles Ellicott be wrong? Anyone? Well, let's ask a few other questions from the Old Testament. Has Ezekiel 38 been fulfilled? How about Isaiah 65, verse 22? How about Amos 9, verse 15? No, no, and no. And those are just a smattering of the as yet unfulfilled prophecies of the Old Testament. Even some found in the law of Moses have yet to find their fulfillment. Unfulfilled prophecy does not equate to an unfulfilled law. Unfulfilled prophecy means we have more to look forward to in the redemptive narrative. An unfulfilled law means we have absolutely nothing to look forward to at all. Let us remember this and let us stand fast on the truth that the law is fulfilled. There's a difference between the fulfilling of a covenant and the fulfilling of everything in the Old Testament. A testament is not a covenant and a covenant is not a testament. And in its fulfillment, Christ's fulfillment of the law, it is now set aside. Keeping our categorical boxes straight in our theology is exceedingly important. In fact, when they get out of whack, the result can be eternity changing for those who are so instructed. Let us handle this word with care and let us be sure to be precise in our words when it is called for. This is what the Lord expects of us. Such truths as this are to be found in his superior word. And so let us turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. 
I've got three thoughts for you today. The first is, you shall rejoice in your feast. It's verses 13 through 15. Verse 13, you shall observe the Feast of Tabernacles. Chag hasukot ta'ase lecha. Feast the Sukkot you shall do to you. The words now reintroduce the third of the three pilgrim feasts, here called Ha Sukkot, or the Tabernacles. It was first noted in Exodus 23, where it was called Ha Asif, or the ingathering. There it said, Three times you shall keep a feast to me in the year. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. You shall eat unleavened bread seven days as I commanded you. At the time appointed in the month of Aviv, for in it you came out of Egypt, none shall appear before me empty. And the feast of harvest, the first fruits of your labors, which you have sown in the field, and the feast of ingathering at the end of the year, when you have gathered in the fruit of your labors from the field. It was noted again a second time as the feast of ingathering, Ha'asif, in Exodus 34, verse 22. It is these words that set the tone for the three pilgrim feasts and how they anticipate the believer's life in Christ. Unfortunately, Israel and many ill-informed Christians see the Feast of Ingathering as being about the end times Jews. In other words, it is common to hear people equate the ingathering of the Jews to the land of Israel as a fulfillment of this feast. If you watch anything on TBN, for example, you'll see them say this time and time again. Now, I haven't watched TBN in probably 15 years, but that's what they would continuously say. The Jews are being regathered into the land of Israel, and this is the ingathering spoken of in the Old Testament. It is not. This is not only incorrect, it is terrible theology. The feasts have nothing to do with that. The Jews are being brought back to Israel as a fulfillment of the promises found in the law and the prophets. They have seven more years under the law in order to come to Jesus Christ. During those seven years, the large majority of the Jewish people, two-thirds of them, according to the book of Zechariah, will die. If the Feast of Ingathering were about the Jewish people, it would be a rather sad event, not one to be rejoiced in. Further, if Ingathering were about the Jews, it would mean it was not about the Lord, because the Jews have not yet come to the Lord. There is error from every angle in this failed typology. The eight feasts of the Lord are fulfilled in or made possible by Jesus Christ. The three pilgrim feasts anticipate the believer's life in Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, because of what he has done. For example, Christ is the Passover that makes our sinless life in Christ possible. The Feast of Unleavened Bread. Christ is the first sheaf cut down and presented before the Lord alive again. His work anticipates the believer's life in Christ, sealed with the Holy Spirit as a guarantee that we too will be raised again. The Feast of Harvest. And Christ is the one whose work then allows our works to bear fruit. The Feast of Ingathering. These three pilgrim feasts of Israel were conducted in the presence of the Lord, and they each anticipate us living out our lives in the presence of the Lord. Israel was living out an annual series of feasts based on the Lord's provision towards them, which anticipated believers' lives in Christ based on what he has provided to us during this dispensation known as the church age. What the Lord provided for Israel is what made their pilgrim feasts before him possible. What the Lord has done for us is what makes our conduct before God possible. The greatest detail concerning the feast is found in Leviticus 23. 
There, instead of ha'asif or the ingathering, it is called tabernacles. It would be hard to understand the greater part of the workings of the feast without reading or watching the sermon from that passage. The feast is introduced there in verses 33 through 36, where it said this, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of this seventh month shall be the feast of tabernacles for seven days to the Lord. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. For seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation, and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. It is a sacred assembly, and you shall do no customary work on it. The feast is then more fully explained, beginning in verses 39 through 43. Also on the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the fruit of the land, you shall keep the feast of the Lord for seven days. On the first day there shall be a Sabbath rest, and on the eighth day a Sabbath rest. And you shall take for yourselves on the first day the fruit of beautiful trees, branches of palm trees, the boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. If you remember that sermon, every single detail points to Jesus Christ. The type of branches that are used, their root words etymologically point to something that Christ has done. Everything about it reveals Jesus. The Lord gave the name the Feast of Tabernacles, and then he gave the reason for the name, saying, I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. There the Hebrew says, Ki basukot hovoshavti et bene Yisrael behotsi otam me'eretz mitzrayim. For in the Sukkot I may dwell sons of Israel in bringing them out from land Egypt. That is based on the words of Exodus 12, verse 37. Then the children of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkot, about 600,000 men on foot besides children. The location known as Sukkot was the first place Israel journeyed to after leaving Egypt. It may have been named Sukkot at that time based on the fact that Israel dwelt in tents, or it may have already had that name. But either way, the point is that Israel had left Egypt, and that was based on the work of the Lord at the Passover, in the slaying of the lamb, the sprinkling of the blood, and the passing over of the people. But one can only slay a lamb if there is a lamb to be slain. Of this feast, Jameson Fawcett Brown states the following. Various conjectures have been formed to account for the appointment of this feast at the conclusion of the whole harvest. Some imagine that it was designed to remind the Israelites of the time when they had no cornfields to reap, but were daily supplied with manna. Others think that it suited the convenience of the people better than any other period of the year for dwelling in booths. Others, that it was the time of Moses' descent from the mount. While a fourth class are of opinion that this feast was fixed to the time of year when the word was made flesh and dwelt, literally tabernacled, among us. That's Jameson Fawcett Brown. Unless one sees Christ as the reason for these feasts, there can only be wild conjecture. And even in knowing that Christ is the reason for them, there is still often 
wild conjecture. What is the correct answer and why? That will be seen as we continue. Verse 13 going on, seven days. Leviticus 23 said, on the first day there shall be a Sabbath rest, and on the eighth day a Sabbath rest. There is no contradiction here. The words are focusing on the seven-day feast itself because it is that which pictures the believer's life in Christ based on what Christ has done to make it possible. The seven days, like the seven days of unleavened bread, refer to the period observed by the believer based on the work of the Lord. This feast was to be, verse 13 going on, when you have gathered from your threshing floor and from your wine press. Some translations say after, while others say when. Saying after is incorrect, and when can be misleading based on how you interpret the word when. The Hebrew reads, in your gathering. It is true that this occurred toward the end of the harvest season, but not everything was fully harvested at this time. Olives, for example, will continue on until the next month. Other crops may still not be fully harvested by the time of this feast as well. The idea here is that the feast is observed, like the Feast of Weeks, in the time of the harvesting. It was to be a time of celebration at the bounty provided by the Lord, as it next says, verse 14, and you shall rejoice in your feast. As in verse 11 with the Feast of Weeks, it is here a positive command. Considering the symbolism of the feast, it is understandable why this is stated. For now, we are to simply read the words as they are given. The men of Israel, the heads of these agriculturally based households, are told that they are to rejoice. Along with them, verse 14 continues, you and your son and your daughter. As in verse 11, the wife is noticeably missing from the list. It goes straight from the man to the son and to the daughter. Like last week, this is a note by Moses that there is no need to mention the wife separately. The husband and the wife are one flesh. As such, when the man goes, the wife was to go as well. Along with them, the children were to be brought along as is fitting. Further, verse 14 continues, your male servant and your female servant. During the pilgrim feast, none in the household were to be left behind. Those in the household, but who were not a part of the family, were to go as well. Along with them, verse 14 going on, and the Levite, the stranger, and the fatherless, and the widow who are within your gates. No person was to be left in the city. Nobody. All who dwelt there were to go when the people loaded up and headed out. Once they had arrived at the place where the Lord resided, Moses again says, verse 15, seven days you shall keep a sacred feast to the Lord your God. Shivat yamim tachog leYehovah Elohecha. Seven days you shall keep a feast to Yehovah your God. The word sacred is not in the Hebrew, and it should be italicized. Like in Exodus 23:14, it simply says, "Keep a feast." Like during the other pilgrim feasts, it would be at this time that the people would bring their tithes and their offerings and eat them. In the presence of the Lord. Remember, when you have your tithes in Israel, for two years, you eat your tithes. You only gave away the tithe every third year. Thank you. If anybody ever preaches tithing in a church, don't go to that church again. But if you want to stay in that church, make sure you tell the preacher that they gave away the tithe once every third year, and you'll do the same. Watch him flip out. <laughs> it would be a time of relaxing, vacation, parties, dancing, and getting to see old friends and meeting new friends. And Moses again notes that it is to be, verse 15 continues, in the place which the Lord chooses. 
Again, as has been seen numerous times already, the unity of worship is what is being highlighted here. The people were to gather around one common sanctuary where the Lord dwelt. Thus, there is a note of exclusivity here. If this is where the Lord dwells and his people are gathered around him, then those not gathered are not a part of what the Lord is doing. In other words, there are the redeemed of the Lord and there are all others. For the redeemed, they were to keep the feast. Verse 15 continues, because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hands. Israel was to keep the feast because the Lord would bless them. The point was to remember that the blessings came from the Lord. In turn, they were to bless the Lord in their time of rejoicing before him. What their hands had produced was only because it was the Lord who provided that it would be so. Of this, Jameson Fawcett Brown says the following. According to Jewish tradition, no marriages were allowed to be celebrated during these great festivals, that no personal or private rejoicings might be mingled with the demonstrations of public and national gladness. If this is so, it is an unfortunate and legalistic addition to the word of the Lord, and it explains much concerning why they have had so much trouble in their history. First, the law never speaks of such a thing, and so it is an unsanctioned addition to the law. Secondly, the most propitious time for someone to get married is when their minds and their lives are set on honoring the Lord. Such traditions are harmful. They are not helpful to a right relationship with the Lord. Verse 15 continues, so that you surely rejoice. And you will become only rejoicing. It is a remarkable phrase. Again and again, Moses has commanded the people to rejoice. Now, his words are less of a command and more of a statement of certainty. The work throughout the year would be long. It would be hard. It would be tiring. The people would be closed in at night, up early, and life would be good, but maybe, as it often is, a bit boring. But to go out on a pilgrim feast would mean a different perspective, a time without work, a time of sharing in one another, and so on. In this, they would be nothing but rejoicing. We are here in your presence, dwelling in temporary tabernacles, and we are rejoicing in all that you have done for us. A fire is inside to warm us as each ember burns and crackles. We are safely secure as we await the Lord Jesus. Oh, to dwell in our eternal home for this we long. May that day be soon, but we will rejoice until then. Hear our praises, hear our joyous song coming forth from the lips of your redeemed among men. Thank you for our great hope and the peace it does provide. Thank you for the surety we have in Christ Jesus. In his hope, we now patiently abide, anticipating all that he has prepared for us. Our second thought today is pictures of Christ. We saw earlier that one can only slay a lamb if there is a lamb to be slain. After that, we cited a commentary that gave various views on why the feast is placed at the end of the harvest season. One view not given, but which is quite commonly taught, is reflected in the words of Charles Ellicott that we cited in the opening comments, meaning that it is not yet fulfilled. That is not only poor theology, it is heresy. I'd like to stop right there and remind you of why it's heresy because Jesus Christ fulfilled the law and in his fulfilling he annulled it Hebrews 7:13 he it is set aside Hebrews 8:13 and Hebrews 10:9 it is obsolete all right it is done 
to say that the law of Moses is still binding on the people of the world is heresy. It means that what Christ did was insufficient to save us. Bad doctrine will keep a person from having a right walk with the Lord. Heresy will keep a person from knowing the Lord and being saved. You need to be careful and you need to be precise in your theology. To say that the feast is not fulfilled by Christ is to say that the law is not yet fulfilled by Christ. As we noted in our opening comments, just because there are prophecies that are yet to be fulfilled from the time of the law, it does not mean that the law itself is unfulfilled. That distinction is both important and it must be clearly articulated. The feasts of the Lord are just that. They are not Jewish feasts and they are not feasts of Israel. They are given in the law to reveal the working of God in Jesus Christ. In review of these appointed times, only three are actually designated as Chag, or pilgrim feasts. That's what we've been going through in this chapter of Deuteronomy. The order from Leviticus 23 is first, the Sabbath. Through faith in him, he is our rest, and he is our place of rest. Appointed time fulfilled. The next is the Passover. He is our Passover lamb, and through him we are redeemed from the bondage of sin. Appointed time fulfilled. After that is the first Chag, or pilgrim feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That is based on Christ's work as the Passover lamb, and it is what makes the believer's life sinless before God. As we are so deemed, we are to conduct ourselves. Feast being worked out in us because Christ made it possible. After that was the Feast of First Fruits. It is a picture of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, appointed time fulfilled. And from there is the counting of weeks unto the 50th day. On that day, the Holy Spirit was poured out because of the finished work of Christ. That is the second Hag or pilgrim feast, the Feast of Weeks. As noted in last week's sermon, it is the only such feast that does not have a specific time frame such as seven days. It is fulfilled in believers once and for all time for each believer as they come to Christ and receive the Holy Spirit of promise. Feast realized in us because Jesus Christ made it possible. The next is the day of acclamation, Yom Teruah, that corresponds to the birth of Christ, appointed time fulfilled. That is followed by the Day of Atonement. It looks to Christ's one-time atoning sacrifice for believers. Appointed time fulfilled. The events of the redemptive year finish with the third Hag, or Pilgrim Feast, the Feast of Tabernacles. It is emblematic of our life in Christ before we are glorified. The final option suggested by Jameson Fawcett Brown is the correct one in the sense that Christ made it possible for us when he came and tabernacled among us. As it says in John 1:14, and the word became flesh and did tabernacle among us and we beheld his glory, the glory of an only begotten of a father full of grace and truth. Christ dwelt or tabernacled among humanity. It is the same word that is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament when speaking of this feast. In other words, the lamb that was slain was only slain because he had a body. That body is his tent. It is his tabernacle. He came and tabernacled among us in order to make our exodus possible, just as the slaying of the Passover lamb made the exodus of Israel from Egypt possible. 
The first location Israel stopped at after the Exodus, Sukkot, meaning tabernacles, was selected to show that the people had been brought out of Egypt. They tabernacled apart from the land of bondage. Think of you. You were in bondage. You were in sin. Christ died for your sin, and you are now tabernacling. It's the picture that's being made for us. Thus, the name of the feast was given, Tabernacles. Israel's annual Feast of Tabernacles typologically anticipated the lives of believers dwelling in temporary tents awaiting their final glorification. The very fact that the Passover lamb is what made the Exodus possible and that the Exodus resulted in stopping in Sukkot or Tabernacles demonstrates that the Feast of Tabernacles finds its fulfillment in Christ's work of the past and not at some point in the future. The types were given in the Old Testament to point to what Christ would do in the new. We are redeemed, and yet we continue to tabernacle in our earthly body. It would make no sense at all for a person to believe and then suddenly be snapped up, taken to glory. Who would continue to spread the message? Rather, there is redemption, the Passover, and being deemed sinless, unleavened bread. There is then the sealing of the Holy Spirit, the Feast of Weeks, and then there is the tabernacling with the Holy Spirit residing in us, the Feast of Tabernacles. These all occur immediately upon belief, but they are logically ordered. The other acts of Christ within the Feasts of the Lord are interspersed throughout the redemptive year as they occurred in the actual life events of Jesus Christ. As far as the Hog or Pilgrim Feast of Tabernacles, Paul clearly shows that it is being worked out in us just as the other two are. From 2 Corinthians 5, for we know that if our earthly house, this tent, this skene, this tabernacle is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent, once again, the same word, groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has appeared for us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Everything follows in order in Scripture because everything is following the redemptive work of our Lord Jesus Christ. There, Paul twice uses the word skinos, or tent, when referring to us in this earthly body. This life in Christ is our pilgrim feast. That could not be any clearer when reading the last verse cited from Paul. And that thee and having given to us pledge the spirit. The second feast, weeks, is conditioned upon the first, unleavened bread. And that is conditioned on the Passover. Christ redeems us from sin and then the Holy Spirit can move in. The third feast, Tabernacles, is an outworking of the second feast, weeks. The Holy Spirit is given, and the person tabernacles with the Holy Spirit because of Christ. The arabon, or earnest deposit, is what assures the believer that the final redemption will, not maybe, will come to pass. The symbolic point of the feast is that we will stay and continue tabernacling in the harvest, bringing all that are the Lord's with us, and it is inclusive of all who are the Lord's. That is evidenced in the words of Paul. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. 
There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The work by Christ is done. The appointed times are fulfilled, and the Feast of Tabernacles is realized through his work. Feast being worked out in us because Christ made it possible. Dwelling in these tents, we hope for our heavenly home. We await the day when we shall be taken there. But until that day, each place we roam, we do it with knowing the Lord tends to us with care. He has filled us with his spirit to carry us along. And with that, we shall remain content. We will praise the Lord in psalm and in song until our final day in this tent is spent. And then we shall be taken to glory, a new dwelling, one to last for all eternity. Such is the marvel of the gospel story. Such is the wonder of what Christ has done for you and for me. Our third thought today, justice, justice, you shall do. Verses 16 through 21. Now, before I give you my thoughts on this particular set of verses, when I was in Southern Evangelical Seminary and Bible College, one of the things I was asked to do one year was to interview somebody from another religion and to provide their perspective on that religion. And I knew that I wanted to interview a Jewish person. I wanted to get their perspective on what they believed in certain things and why they believed it. And so I called the Chabad down here, the synagogue, and I talked to the rabbi and he would not do it with me. He said, I'm not going to do that. Okay. But he said, I've got somebody that I want you to interview. And it was a couple an old man and a woman who were Holocaust survivors. They lived right across the bay from where I live, and so I went down, and uh, the Sha'als were their names. They're probably dead by now. But I went down to their house, and I interviewed them. And he repeated this particular sentiment several times, justice, justice, you shall do. And that's always stuck with me. They want to live a right and an upright life, but without Christ, they cannot do it. Now, I don't want to take this too long, but I will tell you this, that after they were done, I promised that I would not say anything about Christianity. That was one of the things that I was told to not do. You're not to speak to them about your faith. You're to ask them. And I agreed that I would do that. But being sneaky Charlie that I am, after I was done, I said to them, now, do you have any questions for me? And boy, did they have questions. And boy, did they find out that they had been told everything wrong about Christianity all of their lives. So it was, it was a wonderful time that I had with them. I doubt if I convinced them of anything, but, uh, you know, they're living out their lives trying to earn God's favor when it's already been given at the cross of Christ, and at least they understood that when they were done. And one of the sneaky things they told me they did was during the Passover, they did not follow the Bible and get all the yeast out of their house. They put it in the freezer. That was good enough for them. Verse 16. Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God. Because of the prominence of these words, the most common and yet incorrect comment concerning the pilgrim feasts is that only the males were required to go. Even more oddly, I don't know where he got this, Joseph Benson goes further into the absurd saying, that is, from 20 to 50 years of age. The women were not obliged to be present at these solemnities first because, and they went through a long thing and everything he said was incorrect. Nothing like this is even hinted at anywhere in Scripture. There are no age limits at all on the men. All must go. This is simply stated because they represent the household, as has been seen 
a half a dozen times, all people without exception were commanded to go up and be before the Lord. That is explicitly stated in Deuteronomy 31 concerning tabernacles. And Moses commanded them saying, at the end of every seven years, at the appointed time in the year of release, at the Feast of Tabernacles, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Gather the people together, men and women and little ones, and the stranger who is within your gates, that they may hear and that they may learn to fear the Lord your God and carefully observe all the words of this law and that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land which you cross the Jordan to possess. So he acknowledges that they go every single year, but on the seventh year, they're to do something different. Now, before I go on, I want to ask all of you a personal question. This does not apply to you who do not read your Bible. If you don't read your Bible, shame on you, start reading it. But for you who read your Bible, can you imagine going seven years without hearing the word of the Lord? I literally weep when I read this passage when I get to it in Deuteronomy as I'm going through my studies. How can somebody go without the word of the Lord for seven years? I can't go without it for one day. I mean, not one and not even a part of a day. First thing in the morning, last thing at night, throughout the day. I have to be in this word because it's such a gift to us from God. Read your Bible. Cherish it. All Israel was to go up at each pilgrim feast year by year. And on the seventh year, during tabernacles, they were to hear the law read. The mandate to come was not just once every seven years, but every feast, every year. It was to be, verse 16 continues, in the place which he chooses. It is where the tabernacle was situated, or later, where the temple was built. These three times are, verse 16 continues, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Tabernacles, the three pilgrim feasts. They were the people's responsibility to the Lord for what the Lord had done for the people. Likewise, they anticipate our responsibility to the Lord for what he has done for us. We are to live out our lives in sincerity. We are not to grieve the Holy Spirit, and we are to continue to work out our lives, bearing fruit to God for what he has done for us in Christ. Verse 16 continues, And they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. The statement was made in Exodus 23:15 and Exodus 34:20. The word translated as empty-handed is rekam. It gives the sense of something being vain. It was used in Exodus 3:21 when the Lord promised Israel that they would not come out of Egypt empty-handed. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders which I will do in its midst, and after that he will let you go, and I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall be when you go that you shall not go out empty-handed. The intent here is that just as the Lord brought you out of Egypt, as Moses has so often reminded them in the book of Deuteronomy, with hands that were not empty, so you shall come before me with hands that are not empty. To do so would be a vain thing. The Lord provided for Israel Israel was to acknowledge that. Verse 17, every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God, which he has given you. Man, according to gift, his hand, according to blessing, Jehovah your God, which he has given you. This is surely speaking of the tithes and offerings that have been specified in the previous chapters. 
the people were to bring these tithes, but tithes, firstborn, and so on, are based on what one has received. It is these things that are given. This, as you already know, means that they are to be sanctified to the Lord as holy and then eaten before the Lord. In the third year, they were to be handled according to the law of the third year tithe. With these words, a major section of Deuteronomy, that of the unity of worship, comes to an end. Now, without any fanfare at all, Moses immediately turns to a new section, that which Charles Ellicott calls the seat of the kingdom of Jehovah. However, the seemingly abrupt change of direction is really not so. Rather, in order to ensure unity of worship before the Lord, there must be a unity of judgment among the people. Without this, there would be no remembrance of the law of the Lord that required their unity of worship. With this understood, Moses continues, verse 18, you shall appoint judges and officers in all your gates. This takes the reader back to Deuteronomy 1. There he spoke of not being able to bear the burden alone. And so he instructed, choose wise, understanding, and knowledgeable men from among your tribes, and I will make them heads over you. He now notes that this practice is to continue in Canaan. He says that all cities, meaning in all your gates, were to give one shoftim, meaning judges, and two shoturim, or officers. The second word comes from a root, probably meaning to write. Thus, they are scribes. The term in all your gates means in all your cities. The gate stands as representative of the city. But it is also a literal place for these people to work. Legal matters were brought to the gates where these men, they would sit in order to have those legal matters decided upon. That is also seen all the way throughout scripture. Verse 18 continues, which the Lord your God gives you. As Moses has consistently done, he reminds the people why they are to do these things by noting that what they have has been given to them. As this is so, they are to act in accord with the word of the Lord who gives and who can thus take away. They were to give Natan judges and officers in the cities that the Lord gave Natan to them. And this was to be, verse 18 continues, according to your tribes, Lishbatecha, to your tribes. The word Shevet or tribe signifies more of a political than a genealogical arrangement. Each tribe was to individually ensure the political system was maintained within the tribe, but under the parameters of the law which is given to Israel. Verse 18 continues, and they shall judge the people with just judgment. The words of this verse were probably what are being referred to by the Lord through Zechariah the prophet. These are the things you shall do. Speak each man the truth to his neighbor. Give judgment in your gates for truth, justice, and peace. Verse 19, you shall not pervert justice. The word is nata. It signifies to stretch out, extend, and so on. In other words, one can think of what is being extended to what becomes unjust. Just think of any Democrat-appointed judge, and you will get the picture. Verse 19 continues, you shall not show partiality. Lo takir panim, no recognize faces. In other words, justice is to be blind. One is not to favor the rich, or take advantage of the poor. If it is a high official, a national superstar, or a son, there should be no more favoritism than if it is an arch enemy. There was to be one standard for all. Do not recognize faces. Verse 19 continues, nor take a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. 
The words are extremely similar to those of Exodus 23, verse 8. The only difference is that there it says, a bribe blinds the eyes of the discerning. Here it says, of the wise. Rather than allowing such morally corrupt things to occur, Moses says, verse 20, you shall follow what is altogether just. Tzedek, tzedek, tirdolf, justice, justice, you shall pursue. The repetition of the word is its own stress. It signifies justice or righteousness. This was to be followed after as if in hot pursuit, as if hunting, just as that verb indicates. It is the call Amos made to Israel, though they would not heed. He said, but let justice run down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. When water runs downward, it pursues its path. Any obstacle to it is circumvented and the water continues on. This is what Moses is calling for now. This is so, verse 20 going on, that you may live and inherit the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Moses, as he so often does, uses the term lema'an, to and purpose. It's translated here as the word that. It does not really give the sense of what he's talking about. To the end purpose of, the law is spoken and the goal is given. The implication here is like that of verse 18. That which is given can be taken away. But more, that which is alive can be terminated, and that which is inherited can be disinherited. The words call out for right reason, proper conduct, and obedience to the word. Verse 21, you shall not plant for yourself any tree as a wooden image near the altar which you build for yourself to the Lord your God. The word is Asherah. It signifies a wooden image used as a symbol of fertility. These were entirely forbidden within the land of Israel. They were to be cut down and they were to be destroyed. But here, Moses specifically says, near the altar. This doesn't mean they're okay in other locations. That has already been noted earlier in Deuteronomy, chapter 7. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall destroy their altars and break down their sacred pillars and cut down their wooden images and burn their carved images with fire. Rather, the reason for including these words is because this is what those of the other nations did Not only did they erect fertility symbols, but they specifically put them near to the altars where they sacrificed. Everything about the rites and rituals of Israel's was set, and nothing could be added to it or taken away from it without violating the typology of what it anticipated in the person of Jesus Christ. Everybody realizes that, I hope, from all of the sermons we've gone through for the past four and a half books of Moses. Everything points to Jesus Christ, every color, every material, every type of metal, every single thing that you read in the worship of the Lord was set by God because it anticipates Christ. Everything, every dimension, every size, every area, everything points to Jesus. And so to add something in will damage the typology that anticipates Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, setting up such asherim near the altar is just what Israel eventually did. After this, a good king would come along and tear them all down, and then along would come another king and erect them once again. The hopeless state of corruption in Israel permeates the sacred writings. Now, the chapter ends with verse 22. You shall not set up a sacred pillar which the Lord your God hates. The matzevah is mentioned again as it was in verse 7-5. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall destroy their altars and break down their sacred pillars and cut down their wooden images and burn their carved images with fire. Not only were they to destroy such pillars that were formed by the inhabitants, but they were forbidden from setting any up for themselves. 
here it says which the lord your god hates and yet the same word is used to describe pillars which were set up by jacob many many centuries earlier because of this it cannot be the pillar itself which is an abomination but what it represents for israel they had been given the necessary instructions structures and implements for proper worship that typologically anticipated jesus christ this is the entire reason for the minute and exacting care as israel was a people given in anticipation of messiah and as the law was given as a tutor to lead them to him then anything not sanctioned in the law would interfere with that set and uncompromising goal therefore the lord said he hated such things the perfect thought of what is being conveyed here is that of hebrews 12 verse 2 my very favorite verse in the bible actually the first seven words from the niv let us fix our eyes on jesus in looking at what the lord mandated in the law the people were looking unto jesus in type when they looked to any other rite, any other idol any other practice their eyes were being diverted from jesus and today the same should be true with us not in the shadow but in the substance we should set our eyes our minds and our hearts on the lord as he is just we are to be just as he is impartial in his judgment we are to judge likewise as he is the embodiment of the law we are to follow him into the new covenant clinging to what he has done and cherishing it as if it is our highest joy let us cling to the cross boast in the cross and revel in what the cross signifies the riches of god in christ poured out upon poor sinners like us sinners that have failed to make the grade and so the grade was imputed to us by another thank god for jesus christ amen, amen. the story is real it's not a fantasy you know I watch these uh, shows on YouTube while Hedico is cooking. They're usually 10 to 15 minutes long. A guy does a great job. His name is Simon Whistler. Okay, he's from the UK, which always makes it more special because anything a British person says sounds authoritative anyway. Or they make the best, you know, uh, secret agents because they speak with the British accent. Well, Simon Whistler does a marvelous job telling you about things he's got all kinds of channels he's probably got 20 channels on youtube top tens top 10 things that happen here top 10 disasters top 10 this and that and i was watching yesterday waiting for my dinner and simon whistler talked about mormonism now simon whistler is not a christian he's far from it okay and he will diminish christianity all the time that's okay i overlooked that because it's interesting what he presents he does not believe he believes in evolution he believes in all those crazy things he talked on his top tens of uh, things that are completely wacky yesterday, and one of them was on um, uh, Flat Earth. Well, I agree with him on that. And then he went into Mormonism, and he explained why Mormonism was wrong. And it's as obvious as the nose on your face why Mormonism is wrong. If you just research it for 10 minutes, you can figure it out. They have all kinds of things that they have in their supposed religion which are false okay many many things we could go through that in a study sometime if you want no need just go online if you want and you can just type it in and you'll have all kinds of information on why mormonism is wrong we should always do that with every single thing in our lives we should check is this correct or not is the king james the only bible we should be reading why or why not is the earth flat 
or not? Why or why not? You should be intellectual in how you approach everything because there's always somebody out there to lie to you, to make a profit off of you, or to put you into some type of bondage because of what he believes. Are we to observe the feasts of the Lord? Why or why not? All of these things we have to know or we will get into a congregation where we are now in bondage. And that goes with the Bible as well. Can we tell if the Bible is true or not? Because if it's not, why are we sitting in church and what are we doing studying the Bible? Well, after all of these books of Moses, I hope that you have come to the realization that this Bible is not only inspired, it is beyond comprehension how marvelously it fits together. Nothing contradicts, despite the thousands of people that say this is a contradiction, they just didn't go far enough in their studies or they have an agenda to twist your faith away from you. I would never purposefully malign this word and I will never purposefully try to make it look better than it is. And there's no need for the second because it is the best of all that God has given us as it tells us of Jesus Christ. And then Christ came, the best of the best. And he lived out this law and all of the things that are detailed in this word that anticipate him so that we could be restored to our heavenly father. This isn't something that we need to any more worry about if you've done the study. But it is time for you to make sure that you have called on the Lord. It's such a simple thing that God has done. He takes you back to Abraham and he tells you what Abraham did to receive his act of righteousness. And it's the same thing for us. Faith. That's all he asks of you. Christ died for your sins, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, implying that you're a sinner and you need a savior. Christ was buried, meaning that he really went into the grave. He was really dead. And when he went in, he went in with your sins. And Christ rose again on the third day, according to scripture, meaning that Christ is God because only God has no sin and meaning that he was the second part of that sinless because the wages of sin is death. If he had sin of his own, he would remain in the grave. Christ died for your sins. Christ was buried. Christ rose again. Well, if he died for your sins and he rose from the grave, that means your sins are in the grave. They will never be remembered again. Another point of bondage, yes, you can lose your salvation. So keep coming back to church so that I can have bondage over you. Forget that. You are saved, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, and it is forever if you will simply trust the Lord. Please do that today. Understand that there are no contradictions, and if you think you have one, email me, and I'll tell you where you're wrong so you can have a more sound heart in your walk with the Lord, okay? I'm absolutely certain about this. This word tells us the perfection of what God has done in Jesus Christ, so call on Christ today. And one more thing before I read you our closing verse. Justice, justice, you shall do. You shall not recognize faces. I said this during the sermon when we evaluated that verse that I quoted after that. Every single person in this country, when they go to stand before a judge, should have a white sheet put over them so that the judge doesn't know if it's his own son or if it's a black person or a person from Asia. And that person will be judged fairly. But when we start recognizing faces, as we do in this nation, it only causes harm to this nation. Or we could just blind all the judges and then have our trial. Our closing verse, Revelation 21, 3 and 4. Then I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. 
and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, no sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Thank God for Jesus Christ. Next week is Deuteronomy 17, 1 through 13. Until you get it, it's rather awkwardly said. It's entitled, Shall Be Put to Death the Dead. That'll be our 52nd Deuteronomy sermon, and you'll understand why I chose that when we get there. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. But he also has expectations of you as he prepares you for entrance into his land of promise. And so follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? Now, I've got a short poem for you, but before I do, I got a question. Somebody better get this today. I want to see somebody get this, okay? And I've made it easy enough where I will give you three different choices. As long as you get one of them, you got it. Okay? The Day of Atonement, if you get this, there's a pin waiting for you. Just grab it when you come by. The Day of Atonement is not a pilgrim feast, okay? It's one of the feasts of the Lord, but it's not a pilgrim feast. It is fulfilled in the work of Christ. If you don't know that, go back and watch the Leviticus 16 sermons, so much detail about Christ, and then the Leviticus 23 sermon on the Day of Atonement. But it is fulfilled in the work of Christ. What word is used to describe the act of granting mercy, or what word is used to describe Jesus as our place of mercy in the New Testament? Grace. Oh, oh, she got it. I heard grace, I heard mercy. What did you say? Nope, not Savior. It was propitiation. It's a big word. I knew somebody would get it, but I didn't expect everybody to get it. Okay. It is what word is used to describe Jesus as our place of mercy or the act of granting mercy. Okay. The word is propitiation. Now, where can it be found? And I'll give you a bonus. I'll let you ride in this Maserati all week long. Where can you find that? It's three choices. Hebrews is one of them. Okay, I'm going to give that to you. So you get a ride in the Maserati. I'll fill it up before you go so you can ride it all week. Take a pen when you go by. Okay, I'm going to read these to you. Romans 3.25 or Hebrews 9.5 uses the word hilasterion. Okay, Paul in Romans, most people translate it as propitiation. Okay, Christ is our propitiation. It means the place of propitiation. The mercy seat is how it is translated in Hebrews. In other words, the mercy seat which sat on top of the Ark of the Covenant, the covenant is the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments. He is the embodiment of it. He is the one that encompasses the law of Moses. That's the Ark. The gold is his deity. The shittim wood, the incorruptible wood is his humanity. And then on top of that went the mercy seat. The mercy seat is the place of propitiation where the blood was sprinkled. He is the mercy seat. It's, all of that is typology looking forward to him. So that's the first one. That is the mercy seat, propitiation. And in Greek, it is known as the hilasterion. Okay. Next is Hebrews 2.17, which means to be propitious or to make propitious. I would have allowed that. It's not really correct, but the word is halaskamai. And then finally, we have in 1 John 2 verse 2 and 1 John 4 verse 10, the halasmas, which is the sacrifice itself. Christ is the halasmas. He is the place of the halasmas, and he is the one that brings the uh, what is the word? Hilaskamai to us, the, propiti the propitious relation to us. All three of those point to one thing, Christ. Everything is about him. So there you go. It is the propitiation. Good job. And you get a Maserati ride and a 
pen. Please take your pen. Okay. Observe the Feast of Tabernacles. You shall observe the Feast of Tabernacles seven days. So to you I address when you have gathered from your threshing floor and from your wine press. And you shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant and the Levite, the stranger and the fatherless and the widow who are within your gates as is good and right. Seven days you shall keep a sacred feast to the Lord your God in the place which the Lord chooses. So bring your singing voice because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hands so that you surely rejoice. Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses, and as I have commanded, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Tabernacles, and they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able, so he shall do, according to the blessing of the Lord, which he has given you. You shall appoint judges and officers in all your gates, which the Lord your God gives you to where you are sent according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with just judgment. You shall not pervert justice, you shall not show partiality, nor take a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise, and twists the words of the righteous, as I now describe. You shall follow what is altogether just, so you shall do, that you may live and inherit the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not plant for yourself any tree as a wooden image near the altar which you build for yourself to the Lord your God. You shall not set up a sacred pillar which the Lord your God hates in this land upon which you trod. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful word you have given us. We thank you for the treasures that are in it. We thank you for the surety we possess because of it. And we pray that many people will want, will have a great hunger to read this word, to study it, and to be as confident as we are in knowing that we have been given the truth of God in the word and as is revealed in Jesus Christ our Lord. How great you are to do these things for us, unworthy, undeserving, and yet you did it. Why? Can't even imagine. But we know it's true because it says it in your word, and we know that you sent Jesus to make it possible. Thank you for Jesus Christ our Lord, and it's in his beautiful name we pray. Amen. Oh, did I say, I, I don't think I said white. I don't care what sheet you use. If I said white, how racist of me.